Welcome to this episode of From What If to What Next. I'm Rob Hopkins. This is the podcast where we celebrate the possible, however unlikely it might appear today. Here's how it works. Listeners send in their what-if questions, and I then conjure up the two finest people I can find to explore how that question might move from being a what-if to being a what-next, to being a fundamental cornerstone of a new and oh-so-much-better culture. Tony Cade Bambara once wrote that the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. In our wildest dreams, we'd like to hold the same lofty ambition for this podcast too. And so to this episode. Listener Edward Pickering Symes has sent in the question, what if race was completely unlearned and the division made up by colonialists was myth-busted and taught properly, so all we were left with was the story of heritage each person wished to tell? All I remember from history lessons when I was at school was that Henry VIII was a dreadful human being, something about the foundation of the Church of England, a little about Sir Walter Raleigh and potatoes, and that's about it. Oh, and then in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but little about the appalling carnage he wreaked once he arrived there. Talking to my kids, their experience was largely similar, although one of them did remember learning a bit about slavery, but not in the context of it being something the UK played a very active role in, rather something that happened over there in the Americas somewhere. None of us learned the true nature of colonisation, of migration, heard the stories and life experiences of people of colour, or even about the Irish potato famine. How different would the world be if history were taught properly? If the experience, the hopes, the dreams, the trauma, the grief of people and communities of colour were a fundamental aspect of our education system that ran through the curriculum from day one? What if the curriculum, whether at school or university, trained students to think critically about the present and how can they even begin to do so without an education about the past that truly reflects the horrors and the impacts of colonisation? In spite of the recent push from Black Lives Matter and other movements for the UK government to decolonise education here, they've declined to change the curriculum with the Prime Minister Boris Johnson recently decrying what he called an orgy of national embarrassment about our past. And so as movements grow and push for a new approach to education that actually reflects the world around us gains traction, this will be our focus for this podcast. I've taken the liberty of condensing Edward's question down slightly, and so the question we'll be exploring today is, what if we decolonised education? Sir Haima Manzur Khan is an educator, writer and poet from West Yorkshire, UK. Her work disrupts and interrupts questions of history, race, knowledge and power, interrogating the political purpose of narratives about Muslims, migrants, gender and violence in particular. Sahima works to equip herself and others with the tools to resist and dismantle systemic oppression by unlearning the knowledge society and the education system have instilled in us. She was the runner-up of the Roundhouse National Poetry Slam 2017 and is the author of a poetry collection, Post-Colonial Banter, co-author of the anthology A Fly Girl's Guide to University, Being a Woman of Colour at Cambridge and Other Institutions of Power and Elitism, and host the Breaking Binaries podcast. She's written for The Guardian, Independent, Al Jazeera, 
Galdem and other national media outlets and her work is featured across radio and TV stations, magazines and digital media. Her poetry, articles and books can be found on university and school syllabi. She's also been commissioned to write plays by Theatre Uncut, The Albany, The Bunker, Free Word Centre and is currently an associate artist at Bradford's Freedom Studios and has travelled nationally and internationally from New York to Las Vegas, Berlin to Edinburgh, performing poems and facilitating political education workshops on a range of topics. Through all of these means and more, Sahima campaigns against and resists Islamophobia and other state-sanctioned forms of racism, particularly policing and surveillance apparatuses in all their guises. Kwame Boatin is passionate about decolonial approaches to education and community development. Having extensive experience with black youth in rural areas of the UK which are still lacking racial integration, Kwame decided to begin his studies in social anthropology and development focusing on race, identity and their respective intersections with education and transformative pedagogy. At present he's working closely with the black curriculum as an educator. Their objective is to incorporate black British history into the national curriculum to aid a holistic understanding of British identity rooted in respect, reciprocity and empowerment. Welcome both. Hi, thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we have a particular way that we like to start this podcast. So I'd like to invite you both to settle back and to make yourselves comfortable and to close your eyes. And if you're listening to this podcast, you might like to do the same. I'd like to invite you both to imagine that thanks to the state of the art from what if to what next time machine lovingly assembled from plans I found online during lockdown, you are now travelling forward in time. These 10 years we travelled forward through have been a time of the most extraordinary transition. 10 years of rapid and unprecedented changes which built in cascades of change. And the 2030 you now step out into has, in many ways, changed profoundly. It's a world that is the result of our having spent those 10 years doing everything that could possibly have been done to make it a more equal, just, biodiverse, diverse, sustainable and beautiful place. It's a world in which we have decolonized education. The work you both did during that time has borne fruit and has redefined education. Congratulations. I'd like to invite you both to take us on a walk through that world. What does it feel like, sound like, smell like? taste like? What's a day in the life like? And how does it differ from 2020? I don't think it would be too drastically different from 2020 as it is today in terms of kind of the urban makeup of, of the United Kingdom or the, or the world in general. But I think what would take place is we'd be hearing many different conversations, many different languages, much different music. We'd be hearing or smelling the, the, the smells of different foods and and really what would be going on is, is a conversation where people are engaging and understanding a little bit more about one another from a place of wanting to really grow into the future. Fantastic. Thank you. And Suhaima? Yeah, so I really like this um, imaginative exercise. And I, when I open my eyes in that world, I think 
I mean, if we kind of put it exactly 10 years from today, I think rather than it being a sort of September back to school thing, there wouldn't necessarily be school in a specific place. The whole of society would have been altered. So everybody could be learning at any time. The ways we learn would be numerous. So you don't have to sell your time and your labour for a living. Instead, you know, perhaps everybody has a universal basic income and that's the new norm. And the new norm is that for the morning or the afternoon, everybody is allowed to acquire some form of knowledge. And that varies. So you might see people in parks sharing open lectures about their histories or you might see corporate buildings being uh, turned into community hubs where research is going on about the types of histories or projects that matter to local people so that might be to do with health or housing or seeking accountability people might be performing poetry or playing music or taking photographs or sculpting and young people might be recording the oral histories of the elder people in their community they might be going around local shopkeepers and photographing and archiving records I think in that world there can't be private schools there may not even be schools in the way we think of them somehow learning is much more communal we don't think of experts as people who've studied something for you know a certain number of years in a certain institution instead our experts are our neighbors they are people who were formerly detained formerly incarcerated formerly refugees and of course none of those institutions exist anymore in this decolonized education world so that alters then what museums look like galleries exhibitions Wi-Fi is nationalised, everyone can access knowledge, libraries are a completely different place. I thought maybe that the endowments that universities currently receive, all of that wealth is transferred instead to, to the public. So we have like really well-funded spaces like libraries and people can go and spend time and just acquire the kinds of knowledge they're interested in or perhaps share literacy skills with one another. And I think, yeah, in, in many different languages, there's no sort of requirement that English is the height of you know intelligence or anything like that. I think it would alter the way that parliamentary debates occur. I don't think parliament would look the same. I think evidence would look different when we think about how demands are made. I think there'd be no centralised curriculum. Yeah, I, could, I think there's so much that would be different. But I, yeah, that, that's some of the things that I was thinking when I thought about that question. Mm, glorious. Thank you. Thank you both so much. So let's start with a question that's the foundation of this conversation. What do you mean by the term decolonizing education? Why is it needed and what would it entail? So, Heimer. Okay, huge question. Uh, so I think decolonizing has become perhaps a term that we say as easily as, you know, uh, we say other words now. But I think the magnitude of what it's conveying is something really difficult to articulate because we're talking about something not only material and physical, but ideological. So how do you begin to even think about knowledge is something we don't necessarily even acknowledge in, in the sense that we don't take time to think, what is it that I know and how do I know it to be true? So when we're talking about decolonizing education, of course, the conversation has to include the curriculum. And I think it's really exciting that it does. And we're talking about what children learn in school, what adults learn in university, what people learn outside of institutions. And that is all really important. I think what you were saying at the beginning about, you know, history in particular, the kinds of histories we know and the kinds of histories that are hidden. But I think it also extends to things like what we even think of as education. So in that exercise, I just was thinking through this includes also recognising that there are many people who, because they're 
people of color or because they're migrants or because they um, you know, are undocumented or perhaps they were incarcerated or they're currently detained in an immigration center at our border. We don't see these people as sources of knowledge. We don't see people's experiences as sources of knowledge. So, you know, we think of somebody who is an expert in um, prisons as somebody who, you know, has never experienced prison, has never been in prison, doesn't know anybody who's ever been in prison, but somebody who's, you know, studied it, quote unquote. So what would it mean to actually think about knowledge production as something entirely different where we recognize experience as something important. And that is part of decolonizing because you have to remember that part of the colonial mission was very deliberately ideological. And it was this deliberate mutation, I would say, of relationships to say that you are not the experts of your own lives. We, the colonizing power, are. And we can best tell you how to organize your society, how best to um, you know, extract your resources. And we can assure you that it is better for you to give those resources over to us, whether that includes your lives or material goods. And, and then a final thing that I would just add is that that also means that colonizing education has to, has to change the material relationships that we have. So that could mean, for example, the pay. It could be as simple as the pay that we give to people who teach, you know, respecting and, and truly respecting that as labour. But it could also include acknowledging that a lot of the quote unquote finest institutions in this country, whether that's Oxbridge or Russell Group universities, are built materially on the back of money that comes from slave owning, slave holding, plantations, colonization. And I think it's really important to grapple with what it means that we think of those institutions as kind of neutral and objective spaces of knowledge. So for me, it's a kind of three-pronged thing. Decolonizing has to tackle that material element, the relationships within the institution, and then the curriculum and knowledge production as a concept itself. So that's why I think it's a wholesale thing. There can't be, you know, a simple recipe, essentially. This is something that would alter the way we approach things altogether. Fabulous. Thank you. Kwame? Wow, that was brilliant. That was really amazing. Um, yeah, so I think to go off the back of that, and I'll try not to repeat some of the stuff that was saying, I mean, knowledge production, as Sohaima said, is is absolutely key. And I think, you know, when we, when we extend ourselves out of, say, the United Kingdom, and we look at places such as the United States or New Zealand or Australia, I, I know a huge part of decolonization for institutions there is about recognizing the concept of, of stolen land and recognizing the fact that universities are largely built on land that has been taken away from the indigenous populations there. And at the moment, at present, the institutions of university or the institutions of education are like, they're hugely based on whether it be class or accessibility to these institutions. And that can be on a number of things that can be on your intellect, your financial stability, uh, and whether or not you culturally feel accepted in these, in these spaces, because institutions house within them a culture. And sometimes when you walk into that institution, say for galleries, for example, as uh, Sahima mentioned before, when you walk into a gallery, you can, you can almost feel alienated within that space. To decolonize of education is to recognize uh, the position that education holds within our contemporary society today and try to unpack that and make it a more peaceful space for everyone to, uh, to enter. Not only that, but I would say that it would transcend borders as well, because as it is today, we do live in a system of global apartheid where all of us here being sat in the West or in, in the United Kingdom are, are immensely privileged of the fact of, that we can go to universities, we can educate ourselves, we can travel if we hold passports, wherever it is that we want to go. But when we look at countries that would say like in, in um, inverted commas, the third world countries or, or underdeveloped countries, it's extremely hard for you to even leave your country, to even transcend those borders. So when we talk about uh, holders of knowledge, as Sahima mentioned, and people that are knowledgeable in their life, 
how are we supposed to transmit that knowledge if there isn't a flow coming back and forth? So I also think to decolonize education systems is also to look at the way in which our world operates, the world system operates now in terms of alienating and isolating other people that we deem as lesser than, you know, and allowing for that free exchange of knowledge to take place. Finally, it would also be the fact that knowledge now or education is big business and many teachers fight against the clock. You know, if you, you have to kind of deliver a lesson within an hour and that that's for five days a week and for a year and then at the end everybody takes a test and then, yay, if you can pass the test, then um, it's happy days and you can go on to the next university or to college and whatnot. And that doesn't offer a real deep understanding of your position in the world and in relation to the world. All that is is being able to re recite information this is is a byproduct of the way that we have commodified many things in in this society and education sadly has been commodified as well so when you're paying twenty thousand pounds to go to a university to learn a particular subject and you're doing that in three years time it's not that you're going to be understanding the most in-depth information you can but it's about receiving uh, something that is is restricted from a time limit you pay for it and then that's it. It's a business exchange. So I think that another step towards decolonizing education would also be to question our relationship with business, with the commodification of things like schooling, education, and look to try and dismantle that so that we have more of a, a healthier relationship with critical inquiry, a healthier relationship with trying to understand the multiplicities of, of the world in which we live. And what are the dangers, the problems and the challenges created by having an education system that has not been decolonized in the ways you describe? How does this failure manifest in the world around us, Kwame? We can look to history for that in many ways. I mean, as, as we know, like education is kind of a, a colonial endeavor and it has been colonized in many ways. So I suppose the dangers of having an education system that hasn't been decolonized is we have things such as today where i mean to go back to say the idea of national national boundaries and stuff like that you know we have people fleeing war people fleeing poverty and dying along the way and there is uh there's a, a certain sense of apathy towards these individuals that we don't necessarily care but i think the dangers towards not decolonizing education really is apathy and and not understanding the world around us. And as the world becomes more and more globalized, as, as it becomes smaller in essence through these connections, if we don't decolonize our educational systems, we're just going to be walking blindly. As the world unfolds, we have to meet the world. At present, we're not doing that. We're, we continue to walk in a path of our own blindness, our own ignorance. Thank you. Sahima? Yeah, I just wanted to say I'm really um, enjoying Kwame, the beautiful way that you're kind of uh, talking about this. Um, I think to build on what you've said already, I mean, the dangers are self-evident, like just look at <laughs> look around us today. I think that it's a very clear picture of, uh, you know, the dystopia is now. I think the example that I, I like to give that maybe is quite a straightforward one is to say, if I was to teach you from a young age that the history of the UK is one of Tudors and Victorians, perhaps a little bit of suffragettes, and then World War II, and here we are today, you would begin to believe that... Hey, Preston. Yeah, you would begin to believe that um, white people have always been sort of the central story of Britain, that it's included, you know, been kings, queens, and, and these are the central movers of the past. Now, what that does, I think, is create an idea, and this is just one small kind of problem, but... It 
it creates the idea that, you know, Britain is historically a, a white nation and a nation that has very much been the primary mover of historical events. So the reason that's problematic is not just that it's a lie, obviously, and we don't learn anything of, you know, the, the brutal uh, slavery and colonisation and genocidal um, strategies of Britain as empire and not as nation. But it also means that today, today in the society we live in, we can deport people quite happily from this country. We can quite happily strip people of their citizenships. And that is because we're still invoking that narrative that, well, because Britain really is only white and it has only ever been white. Didn't you know that? And so these are the material consequences that it has. It means that, you know, people like myself and Kwame are really precarious citizens in this country. And so then that reveals that there is really a survival at stake. This is about the safety of human beings to live their lives. This is about the survival of people to kind of have access to resources. And I think what Kwame was saying about borders and the kind of international scope of this just proves that, you know, that point is a tiny point of one of the kind of violences of this. But now imagine that I tell you as well that everyone outside of Britain has no history, has no knowledge, has nothing to contribute. Then of course, when you see boats of people fleeing from your imperial wars, you think, what are they doing? Why are they coming here? They don't deserve to be here. This is my country. I fought hard for this country. And so it's just a this, this kind of warped narrative about the past is not simply warped. I think what we have to remember, it's actually deliberately cultivated so that we, as young people, as well-meaning, intentioned people, you know, of whatever age, we actually give our consent to a political agenda that is inherently violent because our minds have been ideologically cultivated to accept that state of affairs. And so we have to see it as actually a propaganda technique. It's not sort of just ignorance or accident. It's something very sinister, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. The theme of this podcast is about imagination. And I'm really fascinated by that question of, firstly, what does it do to the imagination to grow up on the receiving end of that system? And what does it do to the imagination of people who grow up not knowing, not understanding their history? What are the implications of this for our ability, uh, wherever we are in this sort of spectrum, to be able to think about the future in imaginative, new and, and, and hopeful ways? Yeah, so I think that's a really important question. And I think, you know, it's one that we don't grapple with enough, because it's a really violent consequence. I mean, what you've just asked, even the question itself feels hard to negotiate. Like, what are the repercussions? I mean, I, I can only speak from my own positionality. Um, you know, my grandparents moved to this country from Pakistan in the 1960s. Um, for a long time in my life, I, you know, I grew up here. I don't really understand why, why are we here? I don't get it. I don't understand that. And so I think deprivation of knowledge in the first place creates a kind of question mark over who you are. And so because you're never explained or told that, oh, you know, there was a demand for labour from the Commonwealth and you your country was formerly colonised and so you were asked to come here and work, you instead begin to internalise the narratives that you see from the education system around you, which say, no, 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 um, Britain has nothing to do with people who look like you. Uh, we don't know why you're here either. In fact, you know, perhaps it'd be better that you weren't here. And I think what it creates for young children is they learn to see themselves through other people's eyes. And when I say other people, I mean kind of the power dynamic that they are always other. They are never self. They are never the narrator of history. They are never the mover of events. We're simply people who, you know, things happen to. And I think, you know, that may just sound like, oh, that's, that's a real shame. But it has these really deep ideological repercussions, which I think then 
lead to these longer term and kind of deeper systemic problems because you're excluded ideologically, but also then you're excluded institutionally. And what does that mean in terms of how engaged you feel by the education system in general, right? And at the same time, you're being told, you know, you're not doing well enough. Generally, people like you are not really achieving the highest types of grades. You know, what's wrong with you? And I think what that does is then we internalise this notion that this colonial paradigm of us being lesser than is correct. And so to be cleverer, to be more human, to be deemed more valuable, I need to be quote unquote whiter. And so that becomes then this kind of lifelong pursuit that many people of colour have to kind of go through, which is constantly trying to prove I too can speak English well. I too can write my essays in good linguistic ways. I too can whatever it is. And there becomes this really sort of then binary way of viewing the world where it's like, I have a taste in music that is white. I have a taste in hobbies that are white. And I think realistically, this is what colonialism was. It was kind of informing you or kind of instilling within you that you are less human than the white European colonizer. And so to sort of come back to what the damage of that is, is is huge. It cannot be measured. Like, how can you measure what it means to psychologically mutate a young child. And I think there's such heartbreaking evidence when I've worked with kids in schools, the ways that, you know, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds talk about themselves and others, it really can't be quantified. And so for me, that's one of, just one. And again, I, you know, there's so much else I could say, but I think that's just one example of kind of what what it means long-term. You know, what, what do those traumas do to people? How do they then kind of reproduce relationships and dynamics in their own lives when they've been so psychologically scarred. And I think it's something we have to take seriously. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, Kwame? I absolutely agree. That was um, that was very insightful. And I think I just noted down at three things, really. The first, I would say, is uh, the concept of, of double consciousness. I think to exist in a society which doesn't recognize you, but is also constantly uh, surveying you, surveying your body in different spaces, what happens is a kind of splitting of the psyche. As Samaya said, you see yourself through others. The effects that that has on the mind, on the body, is that you are constantly self-surveying. You're constantly aware of your body in particular spaces. So, you know, talking about my experience, when we look at the criminalization of, of blackness or of black men, what happens then when I'm walking down the street? I've had many people cross the road, or I myself have crossed the road, just to not to scare somebody walking towards me you know, just to make them not feel uncomfortable. And again, it it varies dramatically from race to class as well. You know, we have to recognize that as well. But the idea of double consciousness is that when you are marginalized in a community, when you're alienated from a community, you're constantly questioning how you are being viewed by people around you. And that was put forward by uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. And also uh, Franz Fanon did a lot of work on the kind of the process of double consciousness. The second one that I I noted down was um, the process of gaslighting. We recognize gaslighting to be kind of a form of of abuse, of mental abuse, that kind of leads to an episode of of psychosis. So if you're in a society that is constantly telling you that you are lesser than, but then you're like, oh, but hold on, I heard that this happened. And they're like, no, that that didn't happen. You're just imagining it. That's false information. That's uh, conspiratorial. Fake news. That's fake news. Exactly. And what happens is, is that you're then questioning your own sanity. And I think it's this process of questioning one's own sanity within within society, which leads to so many mental health issues and whatnot. And, and as we know, the, the statistics also show that mental health is, is a huge problem within the black and people of color community. You know, it's, it's, it's very large. And the third one that I want to speak about, which I think is the key, is the concept of uh, hermeneutical injustice. So if you cannot describe 
what is happening to you, then you yourself cannot make sense of it. When we talk about not having being taught history, a decolonized history and whatnot, what happens is, is that you are experiencing certain things within society or you yourself have a history, the history of how you came here or the history of your, your lineage. You yourself have this history, but you do not have, you're not equipped with the tools to be able to describe it accurately or engage with other people about this history. And this becomes a process of hermeneutical injustice where you are feeling the frustration of not being able to really explain your experience to people that can understand it properly. And that is a very, again, a very alienating and isolating uh, feeling to carry along with you. Mm, mm, mm. We talked at the beginning when you did your sort of imaginary bit about the future, about what it would be like um, to live in a world where education had been decolonized. I wonder if, if you were to point to what you see as at the moment in 2020 best practice in terms of that within the education system whether in school or universities you know where are the places where are the institutions that are really kind of excelling and setting the pace for how other organizations uh, ought to do this um, Sohaima? Really briefly just wanted to um, kind of respond to something that Kwame said I think those three points were so um useful and it just made me think as well that perhaps something that I would have liked to mention in the last question was that all that kind of psychological violence I think ultimately also means we never have the language to articulate that our demands are political that the changes we need in our life are political because I think that a lot of the that kind of psychological damage is really is also individualized like we're made to kind of be blind to the fact that it's structural and historic so because of that we we kind of deprived of understanding that we can claim we can make claims that are political because this is political so I just wanted to to add that and I think you know that that has damaged our resistance a lot and, and kind of hindered us but you know saying that despite that Obviously, we do have a really rich both tradition and kind of contemporary movement of resistance. And I think um, in this moment, I would say the work that people like Kwame are doing, um, uh, curriculum projects to do with Black Curriculum, Free Black University, people who are really thinking about how to really transform what education in of itself looks like. And I will just add, I think most institutions have really just been trying to respond to, you know, what's coming really from um, social movements and, and people who are resisting. But I think... A lot of institutions, and I think it's worth saying this before moving on to best practice, a lot of institutions have, I think, understood that, because as Kwame said, a lot of universities are now just businesses, right? It's really uh, within this neoliberal framework where you're just trying to get money from students and so it's this transactional thing. I think they've realised that, oh, there are these demands for decolonising curriculum, so let's do that as a rebranding strategy, right? It's essentially a PR move. And so during the most recent Black Lives Matter movement or iteration of it, we saw a lot of universities or institutions kind of putting out these statements of, oh, you know, solidarity or whatever without any corresponding institutional changes. And I think that, that so that's just one caution I want to sort of say is that I think we see a lot of institutions uh, re- I suppose regurgitating the language of decolonizing as a more of like a diversity and inclusion initiative. And that's something that's quite superficial because it's like, let's just have more black and brown faces in this place, but not kind of make those those changes that, you know, we've already outlined. So one thing that I will just say in terms of best practice then, one story that I found really interesting was I think it's Glasgow University or last year or two years ago, they sort of decided to do some research into how 
how much of their wealth as a university, so the endowments, so the alumni who've, who've left that university, how much of the money that they've given over the years came from money made off people owning human beings, so slavery, or owning plantations where people who were enslaved were forced to work. Um, and what they found, I think, was that this was in the millions, of course. Um, and even in, when that was translated into kind of present day terms, it was, I think, maybe 90 million. I could be making that up, but I think it was around that. So obviously, the research, I think, was a really important first step because it kind of acknowledges we are not neutral or independent of history as an educational institution. But then what they did, as far as I understand, is they decided to invest that money I think both here, but also a university in the Caribbean, they decided to sort of invest money there and here in a project and research and money scholarships to black scholars to kind of be able to research and do the work they want to. And I think that to me was an example of what reparations could look like in sense of like education. But I think obviously there's much more that can be done because we know universities are also presently invested in, for example, fossil fuels industries or in in the arms trade. So there's definitely more to be said of, of best practice. But I think most of breakfast best practice isn't coming from institutions. It's coming from, you know, movements that are in resistance to them. So Kwame, it would be good to hear what are your senses of what's best practice and also a bit about the black curriculum, which I imagine is your work to create that best practice. I'll just go back very quickly to the inst on the institutional level as we speak about kind of the big business of education and, and and branding because you have to sell something right and so i think we now live in an age where it's very easy to brand something let's say whether it be decolonial or whatnot and that ups your sales because it's in fashion or whatever so we have to be very careful of these connections between uh yeah institutions that are saying that they're doing decolonial work or anti-racist work and whatnot without actually delving into the structures of their institution and, and trying to help it. Uh, that doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen around us. You know, um, I'm a big believer in on the grassroots level. Again, I think that comes from the disconnection sometimes between the university institution and community as a whole. It's only a select few that get to go to university. And I think it's really about the knowledge that is, is on the ground. And that's kind of the work that we're trying to do with the Black curriculum as well. Our, our campaigns recently have been to try and change education, the national curriculum to reflect the history of Britain's relationship with Africa and the Caribbean, so our, the, what we call Black British history. But more than that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to push forward the narrative that this is not Black British history in the sense that it is other than the narrative of history itself. It's not a, a history on the side, but this is inclusive of history itself. What we are focusing on is going into schools and delivering our curriculums, delivering our syllabus with children in schools. We have that and we run that alongside our springboard program, which is to go into communities and to also deliver our syllabus. So really we're working heavily on the ground with young individuals to try and empower people to understand our history. And that is irrespective of race. I think today the society in which we live has been influenced massively from people coming over from the Windrush generation, you know, and that's not just to say uh, Caribbean individuals, that's to say the individuals that came over from Pakistan as well, and the ways in which this has changed, what we see as being British. We're really trying to start from that basis is that, okay, we now live in a society that is multicultural. Let's unpack some of the symbols around us, such as music, and then trace them back to their origins. And when we trace them back to their origins, we see the relationship between Black British history and contemporary society. We also need to be reaching people that we wouldn't necessarily reach if it was just through uh, from an institutional level if it was just through universities or just through schools because we also have to acknowledge that a lot of 
kids in schools are heavily alienated from the system as well. So if you're going into just school and you're teaching them something, the kids that don't feel a part of that community are not going to listen. If there are people who are listening to this and feeling inspired and feeling that they would start, like to start the process of decolonizing their own lives, of of decolonizing the education that they received uh, during their educational time of life, where might you suggest they start? So, Haima? Oh, uh, that's a good question. That's, if I could only pick one book, I would say, even though it's limited, Edward Said's Orientalism is just a good maybe provocation to think about what we know and what we see about the past and how it may not be true. I think in terms of like things that we can watch and learn from, I know that there's sort of a new the sort of a new generation, let's say, of, of, of documentaries and stuff being made around Britain's particular past. But I think a lot of it, what it, it really does demand people to, I think, have conversations and to listen. And I think that it's not something necessarily, you can't just Google, you know, I would ask that people kind of make a concerted effort. But I think also that it's not maybe as hard as we think. I think that when we're thinking about decolonizing education, that can include, you know, when you walk past the homeless refugee outside the supermarket asking questions how does your situation come to be like this what in what ways am I implicated in this and I think it's also a live conversation do you know what I mean and I think what Kwame was just saying at the end as well about kids who are not in school um, or kids who are sort of uh, excluded from that system of learning I think it's it's difficult when we ask these questions of like how how to learn more it's very easy to just reproduce this idea that like knowledge comes from books and those sort of sources of especially like books that were written a long time ago and that kind of thing so I'm reluctant to give a straightforward answer first firstly because I don't really think I have one but secondly because I think we mustn't reproduce that idea that like oh, so you want to learn about this thing? Here's the answer. I think actually maybe just asking questions is a good start. You know, maybe reconsidering what it is that you know or, you know, perhaps your favourite history book or documentary or film and really asking, you know, whose perspective is this? What perspective is missing? What might we have not considered? Is there another way of reading this? Because I think a big part of decolonizing, rather than necessarily providing answers is asking critical questions so sorry that's not a particularly useful answer maybe but i think it's it's important to also ask questions thank you that's a really useful answer thank you uh, kwame yeah I, ab- I absolutely agree i think that the, the basis of it is the willingness to to be critical of what it is that you already believe what it is that you already know you have to see both sides of the of the coin so to speak so i guess that's really where to start from and from an educational perspective, yeah, there's many there's many things you can do. You can read books if you like to read, and that doesn't have to be academia necessarily or nonfiction. It can be fiction as well. So there's there's many different books out there that you can read that will give you a different understanding of the world. I mean, there was I remember when I was younger, I read the the, the Kite Runner, which was just an absolutely incredible and beautiful book, but it, it transports you into a different world. You know, there's another book. Um, Homegoing basically explores the relationship between the transatlantic slave trade coming from Ghana and it traces two individuals, two sisters, I believe, or two cousins, one that stayed in Ghana and one that was taken into the slave trade. So it goes down their generations. So that transports you into another world. Also films that you can watch that kind of just take you somewhere else. And then the willingness to question, first of all, what it is that you've just read, what it is that you've just watched, trying to do a little bit more research on it. But most importantly, as Sahima said, is conversations. Uh, learning from other people around you because really I suppose when we say to to learn to decolonize what we're talking about is is, is a dominant narrative 
So colonialism kind of just says that this is this and, and, and it's that because it, it is and do, don't question it. So it's a dominant train of thought. The more you challenge that, that train of thought and you're open to learning other perspectives, the more you're decolonizing yourself, you know, so to speak, the more you're unpacking um, certainty. Mm. I love that we could hear you turn around to look at your bookshelf then at the beginning of that. I could sort of have, yeah, have yeah. Visions, of, <laughs> visions of the bookshelf in your room. Um, so just before we wrap this up, are there any po- last points in relation to our what if question? What if we decolonized education that I haven't asked you the right question for? Is there any last thoughts, anything left unsaid? I think when I initially saw the question in the email, um, for example, I kind of one thing that I just felt cautious about was I don't think a decolonized education is a location. I don't think there's like a destination that we arrive at where education is decolonized and we've done it. Because I think really, as as we've both echoed throughout this, that it's really about constant critique, constant questioning. And I, in fact, would be slightly, I don't know, cautious about the idea that, oh, you know, here we are, education has been decolonized. And that is because I think the second thing is to ask this question, we have to also ask what would it mean to decolonize the world and that is just like a huge question and I think it's just to remember that we are one part of a bigger puzzle but also that when we have these conversations in Britain and I know Kwame already said this but it's worth reiterating that you know we are speaking from the the colonial metropole like this is the, the heart the beating heart of empire and we are you know some of the most privileged people in the entire world to have this conversation so I think we also have to remember colonization is a live relationship there are people right now today who are you know whether they're people who are making the clothes that we buy in conditions where they're not paid where they're essentially you know captive what does it mean that we're still benefiting from those kinds of relationships decolonized I don't think is a destination but I hope that these conversations and this question of what it could look like will help move us towards definitely a more just world and one where we're able to actually perhaps begin perceiving and seeing ourselves and others in something that's not a colonized lens thank you thank you so much Kwame as you were saying it's a live relationship and I think that's something we always we tend to forget is that you know, we all have clothes on our back and where do the clothes come from or what, where does the metal in our phones come from and stuff like this. That's, we are implicated in a system of empire to this day. And even the fact that we're sat here having this conversation doesn't mean that we are more enlightened than anybody else because at the end of the day, once we we finish this conversation now, we're maybe going to go down the road and get a coffee. Uh, who's who's growing that coffee? As Simon mentioned, decolonization isn't, it's not a destination and I think if it was a destination, then it wouldn't be to, to decolonize something because I think to, to decolonize something is always to be mindful of taking something as solid, as fixed, and that's that, and to kind of close off to questioning, to close off to critical thought. I would ask as well about the process of decolonizing education is the way in which our relationship with what we see as education itself what are the implications for that on students? What are the implications for that on teachers and the relationship between the student and the teacher? Because I think that it's it's easy enough to say, um, okay, let's just change the reading list on something. And we're talking about the institution here, but it's easy enough to say, let's change the reading list on this. Let's get everyone in from different areas of the world. But if we don't question our behaviors and the power dynamics that we house that exist within us, then you're not going to be changing a system because you could have the best syllabus ever right but if the teacher is a tyrant and is 
pushing essentially a colonial mindset, you know, domination over another person or a human being, then it's just you're still reinforcing these certain power dynamics as normative, as normal. The power dynamics from ourselves to our friends to other people that we pass in the street. How do we house both the colonizer and the colonized, uh, so to speak? That, that that dialectical relationship between the two, I think, is something that we have to we have to question as well. Thank you both so much. This has been so fascinating and thoughtful and insightful, and I really wish you both the very best in the work that you do. And my gratitude for you joining us here today is enormous. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you, Rob. It's been it's been a really beautiful journey. So my thanks to Edward for his question, to you for listening, to Ben Adicott for theme music and production, and see you next time. Thank you.